Section 87. Reorg. Why are we here together exactly? This mission hardly starts from scratch. In fact, it starts from one of the greatest software assets in the history of the world, Microsoft Windows, announcing the reorg. After thinking and writing to provide context to Bill G., Steve B., and Kevin Joe, I had to begin the real work of changing the team. As much as I would have liked to avoid the second step of the three envelopes, having skipped the first, I found myself planning a reorganization. Not just a reorg, though. Microsoft was, by many accounts, in a perennial state of reorg hell. I was planning an organizational change and cultural transformation that would have an effect on every member of the team almost immediately. That meant more writing, more communicating, a lot more. Most big company reorgs are fairly routine affairs that nevertheless cause teams to drop everything, stress out over the weekend because reorgs always happen on Fridays, and contemplate what might change. But then, returning to work on Monday, little changes immediately, except for somewhere up the org chain, there's a new boss who will, in a matter of time, introduce some changes. Most reorgs are not nearly as big as all the time and energy that goes into talking and stressing about them. This was especially true at Microsoft, which, at least to many, felt like it was in a constant state of reorg hell. In my early days at the company, I experienced several reorgs in the most senior, other than Bill G, executive structure, from having a president to not having one, to having a COO to removing a COO, the three in a box, Bill in the office of the president, back to a president, then a president and a COO, then Steve B as CEO, and Bill G as chief software architect, and so on. Office itself bounced between a few executives over the years as well. In fact, just as I was in the middle of planning this June 2006 announcement, Bill G. announced he'd begun transitioning from Microsoft to spend more time at the foundation. Ray Ozzie, email Rozzy, would be appointed to Chief Software Architect, CASA. The thing about reorgs is that most people are trained, best case, to scan the reorg mail and see if their team is directly affected by the change. Specifically, how far away is the new boss? If there's no immediate impact, then just go on doing what they were doing. In practice, most reorgs at scale don't affect most people directly or immediately. The Windows and Windows Live changes were not going to be like those reorgs. This was not a change at the top. This was a change for literally everyone in the organization. More than half the team would get new managers soon after Vista shipped, and everyone would have a new manager no more than three hops up the chain. Even It was even more than just that. Jobs were changing, and with that, many mental models of career paths were being upended. Everyone who thought they had plans for what would be next would wake up to something different. Aspirational jobs, such as product unit manager or architect with no direct reports or code, were no longer going to be available. We were an engineering organization, and everyone was going to be asked to focus their trajectory on building products. Even becoming a manager was de-emphasized, as we asked managers to take on more directs while we reduced the percentage of the team that were managers by about one-third. Then beyond that, we had every intention of radically changing the way we would work. Everything from planning processes to daily builds to milestones. Even meetings with execs would decidedly change, or mostly go away. I spent May and June 2006 on two things. I was mostly focused on meeting more people on the team and figuring out who would be filling in the organization that I'm about to describe. These meetings were a constant reminder of the desire for change. They were also opportunities for ongoing reminders that Windows and services are different and more difficult than Office. 
I probably wrote 500 emails replying to questions about everything from the future of specific technologies, most of which I knew nothing about, USB, DirectX, virtualization, and many more, or to suggestions for how we could improve. I received quite a few questions asking, how do you want us to, and you fill in the blank, on everything from hiring to signing purchase orders. There were many questions that were very specific to situations and people that I also knew nothing about. It was 7 by 24 from the end of March to the end of June. These questions always seem to boil down to process and cultural challenges, not domain expertise. To remain sane, I was also installing the daily builds of Vista and Office 2007, which were both winding down. Not being in the daily triage meetings for Office was kind of sad for me. I vividly remember sneaking over to the shiproom meeting one more time, which proved to be kind of silly and definitely indulgent on my part and a distraction to the team. It was, for me, a moment of sanity just to see the team working. And by that, I mean not taking any code changes. Mostly, however, I was genuinely scared. I had absolutely no doubts about what we needed to do, including how to structure the team and what to ask of them. I had a lot of doubt that I'd be able to pull it off, and most days wondered if I was the right person to drive changes. There was so much baggage coming from office. Something that I was keenly aware of was how many managers, myself included, viewed reorgs as something of an adversarial process. A reorg was something to protect the team from, not something that could help. Reorgs prevented work from happening and were a distraction. That's certainly how I treated a lot of what went on beyond above me for most of my career. But now it was my turn. The very last thing the company needed was for people to view the changes I was putting in place to be prevented or redirected. I was terrified. Would people quit? Or likely, how many people would quit? Would people run to the gossipy press or to mini Microsoft? How much email would be sent to Steve B or Bill G and yikes, would they answer it? What if no one wanted any of the new jobs I was proposing? My first step was to figure out the new leaders. In picking those leaders, I was also certain how the overall organization would be shaped, my direct reports and their direct reports and so on. This structural change was the visible symbol of the reorg. It was a massive pivot away from product unit organization to what I call a functional organization. A functional organization is based on having specific discipline-specific leaders reporting at the top and their teams consisting entirely of people within those disciplines of development, testing, and program management. Across each of these disciplines, we would have mirror structures of group managers, leads, and individuals, all organized by domain. I sketched out the math, and we knew we could build an organization out of about 40 teams of 25 developers each, and 25 testers and a dozen program managers under their discipline leaders. In due course, the intention would be to organize COSDI this way as well. We just needed to let them finish Vista for a bit more time. I would love to spend more words on this section and describing the inherent trade-offs between these two organization types, but it would be a bit of a distraction from the story. Instead, I would refer the reader to Functional versus Unit Organizations, an essay I wrote in 2016 on this topic. There's a link in the online version. In assembling a team of new leaders, I tried to not be the guy who brought, quote, his people from his old job, but there simply weren't any candidates in Windows that would be champions of the changes we needed. You're not supposed to show up with a team, but managers always seem to. I never understood why that was the case, but after living through this, I have a more visceral understanding and appreciation. 
It is not about the personal connection, as most think, but in times of change, you need to have a team of people who share the same worldview by default without having to guide them through at each step. Without that, change is impossible. I thought I wasn't going to be that exact, but I was. Only to a point, however. Within the team, I was able to find a balance of natives and imports, so to speak. Here's how the leadership team shaped up. The search team remained as it was under Christopher Payne, email Chris PA, working on its own roadmap and plans, but with much more capital and more people and soon a functional org structure. Chris Jones, email Chris Joe, a longtime executive on the Windows client team and famous for his work on Internet Explorer, would lead program management, design, and research for Windows Live Experiences, now called WLX. Leading development would be Steve Liffick, email Steve L. Steve had Windows Live deep in his DNA, but, and had been a pro, but had been a program manager his entire career. Having grown up in Seattle, interned at Microsoft, he joined straight out of college in the sum, same summer I did. He was also one of the pioneers in Windows, in Windows MSN Messenger. The challenge facing the team was a lack of enough senior engineering leadership to manage a team of several hundred. So Steve agreed to manage the engineering team and approved to do an excellent job over time. Arthur DeHaan, email Arthur DH, a longtime test leader in office who had built out the internet services operational infrastructure, also joined the team to lead test and internet operations. The new name for Windows was the Windows Experience Team, or WEX. WEX needed a program management leader. In many ways, this job was the program management job at Microsoft. Vista screamed out in need of program management. It needed a holistic view of the user, the customer, and the experience. Julie Larson Green, Julie Lar, was ready for a new and bigger challenge after leading such an extraordinary effort redesigning the Office user interface. She was just recently promoted to vice president for that contribution on top of her long history of successful product development and leadership. Alesh Holacek, email Alesh H, which coincidentally is the proper pronunciation of Alesh, wore his Czech heritage proudly and maintained a, close, remained, maintained a close connection to Prague, one of the most creative and vibrant tech communities in Europe. He also frequently and inexplicably wore bright red pants. Alesh was in the process of leading a rescue mission for large parts of the most visible portions of the Longhorn Reset. In short order, as a new hire to Microsoft, he had established himself as a strong leader and deeply knowledgeable and respectful of Windows as a third-party developer, but also clear on wind where Windows needed to go. After several discussions, I sent him the shortest of emails asking if he wanted the job leading WEX development. An hour later, we had a leader. The testing role for WEX was going to be the most visible test leadership job in the entire company. Windows had almost more than anything was a product for testing. Grant George, email Grant G, was busy completing Office 2007 and was so focused he was reluctant to even chat with me about what comes next. Focus was one of Grant's defining traits as a test leader. In speaking with him, it was clear he was excited about the challenge, but he'd also been much more deeply involved with Windows than I had considered, especially over the past few months, and therefore hesitated because of his concerns about the culture. After a couple of weeks of being left to his own thoughts, he came back willing to sign up. This is a huge win for the team. With the team in place, I penned the longest reorg mail of all time. In hindsight, this surprised nobody, but at the time it was, well, shocking. It was not just an announcement, but an explanation and justification for an organizational pivot. 
the movement from product units to functional organization with large groups of engineering discipline of each engineering discipline and very few product unit managers. While not an intentional play on words, functional organization worked that way as well. The online version has a copy of that email. On the last Thursday in June 2006, breaking with the tradition of Friday afternoon reorg mails, I sent out a three-page email with an attached 20-page memo with no org chart or diagram. At more than 13,000 words, the memo was titled, Windows and Windows Live, Organizing for Agility, Competing with Focus, Building Must-Have Software. I even did something I had never done before, which was to copy the email to all of Microsoft's executive staff and their direct reports all around the world. At the time, there were about 150 execs, um, plus their directs and usually staff. I broadcast this mail in the last days of the Vista project to send a message that we're working and making progress. As soon as this mail landed in the inboxes of about 6,000 full-time engineers and designers, localizers, planners, and more, they would all hear that their jobs would be different. But precisely how would take some time. It would take weeks to build out the five or so layers of the organization down from seven to 10. There was no spreadsheet with all the answers for each person, not even close. In fact, taking a lesson from Office, we put in motion something that was yet another point of evidence of how different things would be. There was going to be a bit of a free market for people to stick their collective heads up and decide what they might want to work on next. Everyone had a job, working on their old area or perhaps trying something new. At the same time, the new execs would be choosing their direct reports, who in turn would be choosing new managers and those people choosing new leads. The online version has a full copy of the memo. The previous two sections detailed the process I used to learn and the memo I wrote for an audience of three to crystallize my thinking. Now it should be clear it was a rough draft for the broader communication as I moved from observations, aspirations, and directions to organizing. As you look at both, you can see the tone moving from analysis to action. In many ways, I was employing the same planning process we use for software to design the organization. Open a funnel to inputs, iterate, and at each step, distill down the actions to what was essential for success. By hitting send on this memo, it led to the most workplace stress I had ever experienced or would experience. Not to mention the stress for all the new leaders who would be crushed with questions and concerns. Most significantly, I knew how stressful this was for every individual. I felt or hoped that the messages would be read and considered, even if not immediately validated, recognizing the emotional nature of such, so much change. There was a sizable pent-up demand for reorg, and that was what people were expecting. But I was terrified that somewhere in the memo, I unintentionally offended someone, or that I expressed too much candor, offending a constituency in a deep and unrecoverable way. Even typos could have been bad. I was certain that I was going to immediately get an email from Mary Jo Foley at ZDNet, who was going to reprint the whole memo, I even had a, I am being transparent, so don't make me regret it, plea in the mail message cover note. It worked. No leaks. I di diverged from Microsoft culture in one way that many found shocking, but was routine for me and Office. I sent out a reorg mail without a directed acyclic graph of the organization at the top of the mail. Even more shocking, there was no org chart at all. When people opened the mail, 
It was as if they had opened a box of Cracker Jack candy and couldn't find the prize. I received countless replies to the mail asking for the org chart, some of them not particularly supportive of this cultural statement, which was simply perceived as incompetence or insensitivity. On the other hand, I also received so many replies that were positive beyond words. The desire for something significant to put the team on a path to better results was clearly in the air. From my former coworker in office, Gene Sheldon, email Gene S., who is even to this day an absolute stickler for brevity and clarity in writing, a decade leading word testing would do that, even originally if she chose to work on word because of this skill. She had the kindest words to say. Gene replied to me saying, this doc is a masterpiece of clarity and focus. Although it is long, it could have been neither longer nor shorter. Wish you could do another employee poll tomorrow. I needed that. But much to my relief, the mail received rather heartwarming reception. I received hundreds of messages from people who appreciated the transparency, the mere heft of 20 pages, which I know most people do not comb over like the Code of Hammurabi or anything, provided some air cover. Some even complained about having to read a memo of such length, a complaint that would become something of a branding item for me if it wasn't already. Being able to answer questions in town hall meetings and then saying, there's more in the memo, became a bit of a rallying cry for me, along with a pointer to the inevitable follow-up blog post in my Office Hours blog. Still, I received a few dozen deeply emotional emails combined with one-on-one conversations. These were people who were the most affected, particularly by the perceived loss of status or career trajectory when it came to product unit management. I knew these conversations would be the most difficult and dealt with them the best I could. No one was being demoted in any way from my perspective, and the organization had a place of equal level and opportunity for everyone. There were no formal staff reductions at all. Surprisingly, we fielded queries from the press about layoffs, which were never even considered. I was asking people to take on roles more directly accountable to engineering outcomes. For some, and it was a small number, it was just not appealing, and they did move on. Each one of these cases was enormously difficult. I'd like to say there was some emotional distance for me because I didn't create the situation we're in. But there's no way to avoid the feelings of the moment. I, in fact, did create this change. With the mail and the memo, I went out on tour, and so did each of the new leaders. The slides containing the reorg were focused on the strategy of why are we doing this and why are we together? Kevin Johnson came up with a hierarchy that we used across the expansive world, consisting of product lines, engineering areas, and feature teams. Kevin was used to organizing tens of thousands of people and had real insights into how to use hierarchy to communicate. The online version has the complete slide deck. I answered the why are we doing this question with a slide called goals of organization changes. This was where the, was the core of the discussion. I made people sit through my talking about this slide at length, rather than, as usually done, emphasizing the structure or chart of the team. The reasons behind the org were direct reflection of the past 90 days of learning as I thought back to the first memo previously described. Many of the exact same words were used, and I had written those a month earlier. In the description of product lines, we intentionally left off the name COSDI, but it was implied in the Windows and Windows Live product area. People would get the message that COSDI was part of Windows, not Windows itself or separate. To address the question of why we were together, 
I created a table of the engineering areas for Windows and Windows Live. Search, Live Experiences, Internet Explorer, Windows Experience. The glue, as I said at the time, was that, as, that Windows, as critical as it, as it was, needed a series of connected services that were core to Windows. This was a sh subtle shift away from services independently focused solely on monetization. This vision would take time to materialize. One could see how Apple was also just starting the same push with iLife and iWork on Macintosh. Recalling the fits and start of services connected to Apple products is a great learning exercise. What we know as iCloud today was originally launched in 2000 as iTools, which were desktop applications for photos, video, and productivity. In 2002, the addition of email and other online services came with the branding of the .Mac service. Then in 2008, two years after our org change, the service was renamed to MobileMe and greatly expanded, which lasted until 2011 when it became iCloud. Phew, that is some journey to get right. We would struggle much the same. It is interesting when everyone seems to have the same idea of where to go at the same time, but takes many years to get there. And not everyone even arrives at the future the same way. The other glue across WWL was Internet Explorer. This was the era when tuning online services to the latest browser was still important. The struggle to deliver great experiences via the web that matched desktop applications was significant, as was owning the frame window for delivering advertising and promotions. Due to the declining popularity of IE and lack of work on a new version, Search and the Windows Live Experiences and the rest of the internet had pivoted hard to optimizing for Firefox. It was not without irony that as I write this in June of 2022, Microsoft has just announced that Internet Explorer has been officially retired and replaced by the Edge browser based on Google's open sourced code. The online version has the Windows and Windows Live engineering areas slide called out. Each of WEX, WLX, and Search and Internet Explorer had sections that outlined the major themes to be investigated or worked on for the next products. There were no names of feature teams, no schedules, no user interface sketches, etc. Astute readers could see where we were heading and how as we dove into more understanding about these areas. It would come to inform the next level of the org and the structure therein, and then specific features would follow. This is what we had mastered in the past four releases of Office, so I felt confident we could scale it here. Change started with this memo. I summarized this change as follows, quoting from the original memo extensively. This memo represents a change. Change is difficult. Change is uncomfortable. Changes that look good today might also have looked good before and failed. Changes that look good today might not be so great tomorrow. Change is risky. The changes outlined here are not just tweaks, but represent the first steps in working in a substantially different manner. Many of the issues raised by members of the team are about the culture of our organization. These are the aspects of how we will work that must be addressed. This memo is about the top line changes, the organization and priorities. And over the coming months, the way we work together will also change. We will push more decisions down. We will aspire to a more consensus approach and to decision-making rather than an escalation approach. We will streamline our organization with fewer managers overall and fewer levels of hierarchy. We will value our core engineering disciplines more and demonstrate this by an organization that focuses on the role of development, testing, and program management 
with integral contributions across the product line from design, usability, planning, localization, business development, operations, and more. We'll ask our teams to be more clearly focused on deep technical contribution in a smaller number of well-defined areas rather than breadth of coverage at too shallow a level. We will allocate resources more deliberately and generally in smaller teams. All of us may not operate with the same, te same tempo, but we will all operate with a rhythm and not move from crisis to crisis. We'll operate with a clear framework and a clear understanding of how we will define success, a framework that is flexible and has vast room for innovation, yet represents a commitment to customers that we will deliver. These changes are part of the agenda of this memo and our organization moving forward, but will require all of us to learn and grow together. I'm committed to doing my part. I will not dive into the middle of situations. I will not randomize your work. I will not be a bottleneck for decisions. I'm here to work with the senior leaders of the team to provide the framework, define success, provide the resources that map to those, and make sure we have the right people with the right skills and the right jobs to get the work done that you commit to doing. That is my commitment to change. A few weeks after this communication blitz, July 22nd, Kevin Johnson announced that John Devon, emailed John DE, was going to lead COSDI, also reporting to Kevin. Partnering with John was going to make everything better. Microsoft was very lucky John took on this role. This was a bit of a reunion for us. I thought back to meeting John the first time in that summer of 1989 when he pointed out so thoughtfully how interesting yet naive, in a commercial sense, my views of memory management bugs were. Then through a few releases of Office as peers, and then John as my manager, promoting me to vice president. Over the past few years, while I remained in office, John had been leading a new team called Engineering Excellence, which brought all manner of excellence to the company across engineering. Under John's leadership, the team introduced and deployed tools and software for training and management, as well as individual excellence. Largely not followed outside of the Microsoft, the EE team was critical in scaling, training, and developing the company's engineering capabilities across every single product line. It was the first substantial effort at training engineers since Clunder College for new applications developers, which ended decades earlier. John was uniquely qualified to give his lifetime of experience to re-energize the engineering culture of Windows. So loved as an engineering leader, an early 1990s pre-beta build of Excel once read Excel Developer Release, and the developer was spelled with a capital D and a capital V, just like John's name. John created a top-level organization structure to parallel WEX by naming three senior leaders for development, program management, and testing. Ben Fathi, Ben F.A., Chuck Chan, Chuck C., and Darren Muir, D. Muir, each expressed experienced Windows leader for a new team called Windows Core Services, WCS. Their peers and counterparts in WEX were Alesh, Julie, and Grant. In addition, John would have a team of architects, the original COSDI architecture team, as well as the corporate resource team for security engineering, trustworthy computing, and also a large team providing the fundamentals engineering, engineering tools and measurement, sustained engineering, and support for in-market products that would produce urgent monthly and regular service updates, all led by Wael Bahav Eldin, Wael B, called Windows Engineering Services, WES. WEX and WCS, split. the split of Windows Org was a first turn of the crank organizationally to build a unified Windows team. John and I, of course, were a thousand percent unified at the top. 
our respective teams were unified. Still, it would be fair to say that the old rivalry or tension between Windows Client and Cosdi would continue to manifest itself until we were well into building the next product. John and I were working to create an organization of peers, but history did not always see it that way. There was a lot Wex would need to prove to WCS in terms of focus on performance and quality, as much as WCS would need to prove in terms of building exciting products. When tensions would arise, so would the old names, Client and Cosdi. That's how John and I knew we were still in the midst of a cultural transformation. In practice, this is all part of the slow rolling process of changing the direction and the culture of a giant ship. The structure is only the first change of many. I remember when I was relatively new to Microsoft and Bill G created the Office of the President and announced it at a big meeting. Well, it wasn't that big since all of apps fit in the old Kodiak room back end, still hundreds of people. And, and then went back to my office and kept working. Uh, it didn't change anything. An analogy I often used about change came to mind. The reorg was like how the Soviet Union fell and the next day everyone was back at the Goom department store waiting for winter coats to arrive. But over time, there would be huge cultural changes. As interested or perhaps perplexed as people were with these changes, they wanted to know who their boss would be and what they were going to build. Reorgs always come down to the most localized interpretation possible. Something I should say about this organization that is incredibly important. While I'm obviously biased, as can possibly be, this was the very best team at precisely the right moment to do exactly what Microsoft needed to get done. Perhaps this is a bit much to say, but this is decidedly a collection of super friends, each of whom brought their own unique superpower when Microsoft needed it. For the remainder of this work, everything good that I will write about happened because of this group of leaders. The Microsoft of today owes them enormous gratitude, not just of what they did from this point forward for Windows and services, but several were also foundational members of Office that so dominates Microsoft today. This whole team ran towards the fire. But figuring out what we would do was going to take another six months or so. Whether that seemed like a lot of time or a little time was a matter of perspective. Teams that were done with Vista were just going to start doing what they thought would come next. Likely what they just cut, rather than what might be optimal for a full product plan. Whether the team wanted to acknowledge it or not, there was also a ton of work to be done on the basics of just the engineering system. The changes weren't over. They had barely started. 